What have you been seeing in the news this week? What's caught your eye? What's um, been making you scratch your head and wonder what's going on in the world? You know, it's interesting. We've been talking, you know, since we started this thing about how the the double whammy of the trade war and COVID is probably finally going to get people diversifying their supply chain. But yet I haven't seen that much about it in, in the press. And so you know, it kind of started last Sunday, you know, Barron's, uh, Barron's ran a big piece. I don't remember the exact title, but the title was something like cost differences will not impede uh, diversification of supply chain. And I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure what that's data they had to right. support that. I mean, maybe around the edges. Uh, Bank of America, you know, did a big proprietary survey, you know, their investment uh, research group, their equity research group, found out that, you know, 11 out of 24 of the you know, kind of the S&P sectors um, have a pretty big move afoot to go geographically diversify their supply chains. Yeah. There was an article in, uh, in Security Magazine, which is, you know, it's kind of a cybersecurity, you know, network security type of thing. Uh, but it caught my eye because it was talking about how the risks that, you know, one in 10 companies, you know, is affected by some type of, you know, cybersecurity issue in their supply chain, whereas, you know, seven out of 10 were impacted by this. Um, yeah. And they, you know, did a survey of their readership and said that, you know, 60% of their readership is actively looking at uh, diversifying supply chain. And then there was, uh, you know, a really senior guy at Foxconn uh, this week, which I thought was a stupid thing to say, even if it is true. Uh, made the comment that uh, you've heard me say that you know China is the world's factory and it's going to remain the world's factory for a long time. Uh, he yeah. specifically came out and said China is no longer the world's factory. Right, that's done. That that ship has sailed, yeah. and that was evidenced in part by the fact that you know Foxconn now has close to thirty percent of its capacity outside of China. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that still sounds like a pretty seventy you know, percent position. I mean, you know. You know, call me, call me when you have any location that is as big as China, right? Then we'll, yeah. you know, then we'll, we'll, you know, we'll play taps for China. So it's interesting how now a lot of the more mainstream media is getting this. Yeah, this is, this is going to be real. And, and certainly we're yeah. getting more inquiries, you know, people going, where should I go? And how can you help us? And how quickly can you move? Yeah. And yada, yada. So it's pretty yeah. interesting. Yeah, no, I think it is interesting. And I've seen some of those surveys I saw. I think it was a Gartner survey that said 33% were either moving their supply chain out of China or thinking of moving their supply chain out of China. And for me, that's too broad. I want to know how many are actually doing it because uh, I suspect yeah. out of that 33%, it might be 3%. It's not, it's not many that have got to that point yet. And I know people are considering it at a board level. Um, and I think with certain supply chains, they're going to be pushed in that direction. That might be medical, it might be, you know, pharmaceuticals, it might be certain products, um, and obviously other sensitive products. But um, it's it's $4 trillion worth of manufacturing. You can't just plug it in elsewhere. It's, um, you know, it, it's substantial. And, and the more I talk to people that are operating a um, successful China footprint, the more they tell me China can do things that we can't do elsewhere. You know, we can stand up volume of a new product faster in China. We can, I talked to someone uh, recently about, about PPE. He was telling me about a company that's making PPE. They're making 10 million units a day. Uh, and before COVID, they'd never made a piece of PPE. So that's just, awesome capacity generation in you know in next to no time so i kind of see that you know we we keep hearing these ideas of this is going to be the new normal this is what post covid is going to look like um but the more i talk to experts the more they kind of rail against that and say you know leave move out of china cautiously and also it's a you know it's a huge consumer market as well so we have to yeah, we have to remember remember its value there. So, yeah. So, uh, Lior and I are both, um, as is it seems like the capital of Silicon Valley, are you know flex alumni from some point in time. Um, Lior was doing some you know kind of uh, entrepreneurial activities, looking within Flex and figuring out you know what were the technologies they were developing that you know maybe would be you know better and have a brighter future outside. So he started by kind of 
you know, liberating some captive technologies and spinning them out. And uh, for the last couple of years, he has been running a, uh, a venture fund, a very successful venture fund called Eclipse. And uh, again, specifically investing a lot of his money in this, you know, uh, thesis of the reshoring of high-tech manufacturing. So that let's uh, bring on Lior, who I think is uh, in the middle of the night in Tel Aviv. Yeah, Leo. Thanks so much for staying up, staying up late and joining joining us. It's now it's now Friday morning for you as well. It's Friday morning here in Melbourne and uh, mm-hmm. Thursday afternoon for Ron in California. Um, not very not very different than my regular nights here with the opposite time zones of California. So don't, don't feel bad. Yeah, no. I think it's probably pretty much part of part of your standard day, isn't it? The day the exactly. day seems to have got longer and longer. Um, so. Did Ron nail it in terms of that thesis of, of mobility for manufacturing? Tell us a little bit more about what the strategy behind the um, the portfolio is, because you're over fifty companies now, and there's you know th- there's a reason they're all there. Yeah, no, um, and I appreciate uh, th- th- thanks for having me uh, for this great uh, webinar. And um, yeah, I think in a high level, uh, Ron nailed it. Uh, we a huge believer of digitizing all the industries. Uh, manufacturing, logistics, supply chain, construction, uh, etc. In, in the very middle of that. And we're basically uh, thinking that um, all of the technology that is being developed in Silicon Valley in the last 20, 30 years, cloud infrastructures and AI and data science and software and computer vision and automation is going to migrate from only the IT worlds to industries that have a physical uh, presence, like the manufacturing. And um, uh, we raised approximately $2 billion now uh, to invest it, uh, um, in uh, th- those type of uh, companies. And we're having a lot of fun. I have 56 companies in the portfolio. We are 18 full-time people at the firm. Um, a lot of us, as Ron mentioned, came from the manufacturing world. Uh, myself from Flex, Mike, that was the CEO of Flex. Greg was the CEO of Tesla. Uh, Seth led the, the predicts at GE. Adam Bryant led production at Tesla. So we feel very comfortable to invest in the manufacturing space. And um, yeah, we've been seeing, um, I think pre-COVID, we were seeing fast adoption in the manufacturing world around software and automation and computer vision. And post-COVID is just got 10x. Uh, So really excited to see the portfolio growing very fast. Yeah. Yeah, and what I was interested when we were talking um, before we came on camera is that you have a lot of collaboration between those companies. So you're able to kind of look for investments to plug gaps and then you're able to to have them help each other out. Tell me a little bit about how that works. Yeah, when we, um, one of the fun part of investing, um, um, we're not a general fund, meaning, you know, we have, uh, I don't know, 20 investments in the manufacturing world. Um, and what it's allow you is to do a lot of collaboration between the portfolio. So we can use oh, a technology of a company called Instrumental that's focusing on defects, computer vision and machine learning into a bright machines, automation cells that are focusing on assembly. And we, we can take um, uh, the bright machine cells um, and allow a company of ours in the saltation space called Kindred to leverage some of their technology just in a different industry, in that case, in the logistics. Uh, and we can have a single call with the CEO of the Gap company and bring him eight, nine different companies around automation and supply chain and logistics. So it's just a multiplier power. You know, you guys are all manufacturing experts, you know the power of economy of scale and we are leveraging just from investment point of view. Yeah. Yeah. And when you look at the investments you've got, which are, which of them are having the most positive demand trends at the moment? Um, not necessarily by company name, but maybe by technology or both. I mean, the reality is we in the last um, from COVID, uh, you know, essentially from March, um, A, we invested close to $240 million into the portfolio. So we're just wow. seeing an amazing opportunity to uh, companies doubling and tripling their uh, headcount uh, because they're just yeah. taking market share. Um, I can tell you that, you know, for example, a company in our portfolio that's doing predictive maintenance for manufacturing called Augury um, will do 
500% growth um, this year. Um, you know, uh, Bright Machines uh, this year alone um, will book $50 million in new business. Um, um, you know, Instrumental tripling this year, uh, Kindred um, 4X this year, uh, and the list goes on and on. I think what we are seeing is, and you know, uh, maybe I will describe a phone call I had with Kevin Kruntz, the senior vice president of operation at The Gap that I think demonstrate everything that is happening around. And his, uh, um, in his voice, he were telling me, Leo, listen, uh, in regular days before COVID, I could put in this area of the warehouse 200 people. Now I can put 20. Wow. I can put yeah. a, I can I can put though as much robot as I want. And in warehouses that he had an automation, he could sort and deliver to the e-commerce that's growing exponentially fast for the gap and everyone else. And warehouses mm-hmm. that he didn't have uh, uh, automation, he basically had a massive backlog. And yeah. that's we're seeing that in construction, we're seeing that in assembly, we're seeing that in logistics. It's just um, and, and people, if uh, if adoption automation wasn't their top 10 things to do, now it's their number two, when number yeah. one is the employee, their employee health. And their number two yeah. is like, we need technology right now. Yeah, yeah. So there's that massive acceleration in, um, in digital transformation, transformation and the massive acceleration in demand. You mentioned there, and, and the gap is a great example, you mentioned there the the disruption of workplace um, environment and social distancing and all those things. But obviously the other disruptions have been around supply chain, around um, supply disruption initially, and then demand disruption, which is, which is driving you the most, or, or is it kind of all of the above? Is it, is it a desire to automate? Is it a desire to transform, to get that visibility that helps you react when you have a crisis? Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, Ron was talking a little bit about that. I'm sitting uh, in the Made in uh, Washington, have a task force called Made in USA that I'm sitting there on the board with Subi. And you know, Subi is the SVP operation of, of Apple. And he, what he was saying there, he was saying that uh, the board of Apple uh, give him a number one priority to move dependency from China uh, for the next five years. So they have a five years plan for Apple, the largest manufacturing in China, to move dependency of China. And you ask yourself why, you know? And the end of the day, actually, they're doing a pretty good job of building those phones in the most mm. cost-effective way. And um, you guys know manufacturing very well, so you know that uh, it's not only the assembly, the supply chain around uh, the components, the know-how, the experience, the from CNC to injection molding to PCBA, SMT, Asia today, and particular China just got a massive expertise leapfrog uh, versus the world. If we like it or not, we lost um, We lost to China in the last 30 years um, the competitive advantage in manufacturing. Um, and it's creating a really big problem because you have a one problem is you cannot hire as before in China. And at Flex, we had a lot of facilities that we had 100% turnover every year. So we you need to train people all the time. And wages is going up. And they don't want to do manufacturing anymore. They want to become engineers. And um, you have uh, supply chain issues uh, because now you're building three SKUs a year instead of one. So you need to do much more EVPs and DVTs and NPIs. And it's just, you, you, you cannot fast build enough. Um, and then you have um, geopolitics issue, China, US, and now suddenly you have tariff and the bomb is going up in 20% because of tariff. And then you have COVID. And I think what everyone is in a, some place kind of saying that's enough. We cannot uh, continually running the business in a way that we can go back to the streets and our earning calls and be sure that we can deliver what we are saying without having much more control. And the reality is in China, you will never have, will have control, even if you're Apple. Um, and I think this is with a lot of money that is going to come. And I'm telling you, Washington is going to pour trillions of dollars mm. to rebuild uh, the manufacturing and logistics in this country, uh, as similar as China did when you think about it in the last two, three decades. 
Um, so I'm excited because I know that we don't have this amount of people and we don't have the skills. The only way to fill the gap is technology. Yeah. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I, it kind of brings me on to an interesting question. And we've seen lots of talk in the media about government incentives um, with respect to what Japan have been doing, putting money in to, to pull supply chains out of China, um, but also what the, the um, presidential candidates are saying in terms of their manufacturing story. Are you concerned about how the way they're spending money or is the fact that they they're talking to people like you i mean that would encourage me and make me think okay well maybe there are some incentives to invest in in digital technologies in transformative technologies rather than just um try and throw um, money at the industry that isn't competitive yeah so i will say that um I will be encouraged when I will actually will see the dollar flying. Uh, right now, it's a lot of talks, um, but I think you know. I, 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 joking aside, I think very senior people is being involved from DC, and um, and and I think there is um, when you're taking when you're thinking about um, um, two aspects: recession. What is the best way to go out of recession? Is to invest in infrastructure because that's what will create you the most jobs. And we didn't do it in this country for what from the 1920. Um, so you know, you if um, President Trump is going to reelect it again, he is going to put trillions of dollars into the infrastructure, and a lot of that will come to manufacturing. And I believe in that, um, and I see them acting already. Um, I think the reality is. If you also taking of where the world of consumption is going, personalization, uh, multiple uh, tons of different SKUs, tons of uh, different on-demand stuff, you will need to bring manufacturing much closer to the demand, because when you're putting the layers of e-commerce on top of that, you just you just cannot you are not going to manufacturing for inventory, you're going to manufacturing for demand, and if you are manufacturing for demand, it must be domestic. So yeah. I think when you when you when you couple those two things together, I think you you're going to have an interesting correlation of growth. Yeah, I have a comment. I have a comment about that, Leor, and then also a follow-up yeah. question. You know, I I've, I've heard our president say uh, talk a lot about tariffs, talk a lot about you know, being taken advantage of. You know, I heard maybe two weeks ago he he was kind of invoking the Brazil model, and. That's, that's something that, that's concerning to me. And, and I think you're on the right points, which is for us to really bring back a lot of manufacturing, we need to think about the infrastructure, the capability, the technology, the capacity types of issues. And simply following the Brazil model, which is, you know, to kind of sum it up, I'm going to make it really expensive for you to import and therefore you'll build it here. And it's just not that simple you know of an equation it's not going to, yeah and, and and ron and it's a great point we actually talked about it in the last board in april um in the made in usa that model can work when your wages is like in brazil yeah. uh actually that mo that model that that model will not work in this country but the only model that will work in this country is to build the next generation so you build fully automated lights out factories and you build uh, automated SRS warehouses and you build automated supply chain and everything is with digital twin and connection between CAD to come and all of the good stuff that we have in this country. Um, and I think that should be the focus. And this is where the trillions of dollars needs to be spent because we don't have uh, suddenly in Nebraska, a Juhai like city that you can hire an 80,000 uh, manufacturing employees that willing to stand for 12, 13 hours a day doing assembly for mobile phone. Just not going to happen. Yeah. So tell us how Bright Machines plays into that. Um, and, and since COVID, um, you were talking about, you know, how demand's just going through the roof for a lot of your companies. Mm -hmm. Have you seen a geographic, you know, first off, maybe, you know, tell our listeners a little bit about what Bright Machines does, but have you seen that demand shift from where it's coming from, you know, geographically since, you know, April, May? I will, I will tell you, Ron, that, by large, I want to say more than 80% of the total demand across the portfolio is US-based. 
we actually do not see international is moving as aggressively as us right now and that's encouraging from my point of view because i think you know corporates and fortune 500s giving understand that they need to change and giving themselves a chance to adopt to the new world when their competitors i believe uh, is not taking that not the european and not the asian run right now um back to what is bright machines so bright machines it's a company we built uh, um originally uh inside flex and we um build a, a shell company um out, uh, from eclipse and we spun out the team that did automation inside flex um into the into the nuco um and today we have uh, around 550 employees um worldwide uh, three main geographies here in Israel, San Francisco, Seattle, and we have folks in Guadalajara, China, Europe, etc. And what the company is doing is they're building a software-defined automation. So the grand vision here is think about you have a front-end of a line that pilot it's fully automated today, all of your SMP and pick in place, etc. And then you have a back-end of a line that pilot it's 100% manual today. And we want to do to the back-end um, what's happening today in the front end. So it's a software that's running across different automation cells and allow you to change what the automation sense is building from the software with all of the great tools. So you can you know, play it and simulate that with digital twin. There is no code on the micro factory. So you actually don't need to, uh, um, you know, this big um, uh, controllers program, the robots, everything gets uh, elastic software from remote. And, Again, the grand vision is that you're, you're, you're sending software from the cloud and the line is changing what is building, very similar to the SMT. You just, instead of uh, changing the, um, the tape um, with a component, in that case, you will feed the backend with uh, new materials and that's about it. And yeah, we, we are seeing, um, we will sign this year around 25 new logos in the United States. Oh. And that's, you know, folks like Honeywell and Stanley Blank and Decker. So, you know, blue chip customers that need understand that automation must be a big portion of where they're investing in their manufacturing world. Are you and, seeing are you seeing more investment from OEM than from EMS in, in that area? Much more OEMs. Uh, I think there's a lot of pressures on the EMS companies right now. Um, and we're seeing definitely much more adoptions on the on the OEM side of things. So I will say that you know Flex is still a very very large partners of us and Bright Machines, and uh, continue to grow their offering with Bright Machines. Okay. And Jabil. Going to say something, wrong? and Jabil too. Oh no, go okay. go ahead. No, what I was going to say with respect to the um, EMS companies, I've interviewed a lot of CEOs of EMS companies in the last three months, and the, the topic of digital transformation continuously comes up, and there's a desire to invest, and then there's a, this this background of pressure from their their board to to keep capex under control. So it's this really really challenging thing. But what I have seen have some success is some disruptive business models that are much more of that as a service model. And I know <coughs> within automation, I think that's a really interesting opportunity. Is that something that, that you're seeing more of? Yeah, I mean, we, um, you know, back to Bright Machines and some of the other companies today, we can offer you a CapEx model, we can offer you a pure subscription. So the CapEx is on our books and you just pay us a monthly subscription, very similar to what you will pay to your label. We start offering now per unit. So basically, essentially a license, you're building a vacuum cleaner, you pay us, you know, a dollar, two dollars per vacuum cleaner. Um, in the case of Kindred with the Gap, they're paying us five cents per item that we are sorting. So all of the software support, how the, everything is now in the company book, they're just paying us, uh, again, very equivalent to what they will pay to a human in that case. Um, it's a couple of cents per sort. Um, so I, 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 I believe uh, the EMS companies, um, it's less about CapEx pressure. It's much more um, the main issue for EMS public companies in this uh, country right now is they have value-based investors that wants, you know, high EPS and they don't want you to take the profits and invest in the future. It's just not this type of investors. And to change your investors from value-based to growth uh, uh, phase, it's really hard. 
yeah. yeah. And it, you mentioned, you know, back uh, to those. You, sorry, sorry, go ahead, Rob. You mentioned, you mentioned Kindred and, and you know, robots uh, as a service. You know, one of the issues with robotics is, you know, you have to support them, right? Not only the maintenance and stuff, but every once in a while they will get lost. They, they need some human intervention. They need to be rehomed, uh, recalibrated, et cetera. I found it very interesting. I was fortunate enough to get to work with Kindred a little bit last year. Maybe you could talk about um, the pilot program and how you have people that can remotely operate uh, these robots if they get into trouble. Yeah, thanks to Ron, we have a great hardware. It's actually not getting stuck very much, but when it is getting uh, stuck and uh, uh, Kindred, uh, um, there is a pilot that's sitting far away, actually now sitting in Mexico, believe it or not, and a pilot um, will sit in front of computer and he will see a fleet of 20, 30 different robots and he will get an alert when a robot is getting st stuck and he will take from remote a control of the robot and you know either recalibrate them or uh, um, do whatever uh, different tasks that he needs to do and then just press play and the robots will go back to work. And one of the metrics we work very close with the company when we start uh, Kindred a couple of years ago, we had one pilot and two robots and then we got better and we have one pilot on six robots. Now we have one pilot and 20 robots. Soon we'll have one pilot on 50. Uh, because the beauty here is every time that the pilot is doing something manual, the software is recording that and teach the rest of the fleet of what just happened. So, you, you know, it's just getting better by the time. And it's really exciting because I think it's this is the model in general for future of automation. Yeah, we're yeah. talking about the fact that, you know, we've lost a lot of the skills in the U.S. And I wrote an article years ago for industry week talking about how we just don't train industrial engineers in this in this country anymore we just don't have enough automation engineers we've we've lost you know kind of that core capability and so it's really interesting that when you're selling it as a service right it's not some piece of hardware that you know install it and you guys have fun with it and hope it works for you right you are providing the assembly service you're providing the solution uh, order fulfillment pick and place service um, and to do that given that there is this deficit of skills you know you've, you've got this remote way of of imparting those skills i just i just find that model fascinating yeah i think it's a yeah what the other thing i i think is really interesting here is you you talk about bright machines and you talk about kindred you've got two robotics companies both doing some really neat stuff both coming out with disruptive business models are you able to leverage the learnings from one with another? Are they collaborating? Are they helping each other to to develop the next business model, the next solution? Yeah, I mean, we we just had um, the team from Kindred helping the teams at Bright Machines to build a business model of um, of each peak uh, uh, payment. Um, and you know how actually they structure those contracts how the service is working how the commitments of UPH or unit per hours is being done so it's very small things like hey, can help me with the business model between portfolio up to you know uh, using um, bright machine cells to build a covid test for our company called lucera health they're doing um, an end-to-end -end covid test uh, at home that uh, hopefully will be in the market in September. Uh, and then it's like extremely high volume automated and they didn't even design the product for a manual assembly. They designed the product with bright machines for full automation. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so in, short, in short, although there's a lot of collaboration and we, we are trying as hard as we can um, to, to push um, more of that collaboration between the portfolio. Yeah. And yet, you know, it, it looks to me that what you've identified is a whole group of digital building blocks here. You're you're um, investing within those, and you're building a portfolio that's really, really nicely connected and be and able to help e help each other. If you look on the software side, what are you seeing in terms of AI development, and what do you think are the big milestones in terms of AI development, particularly for manufacturing and supply chain? Yeah, it's an area we spend a lot of time to look at. And 
you know, I cannot tell you. Um, so just to give you a sense, we, we will meet every year 25, 2700 companies and we'll invest in, in six or wow. seven of them. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of screening and not a lot of investments. And that's kind of the model. But, you know, I cannot tell you the amount of AI companies for manufacturing that we're seeing, you know, bright people, you know, teams that came, I think the last one I saw, team that came out of LinkedIn, um, really senior team and, you know, wants to take everything that they learn in LinkedIn and come to the manufacturing and they're coming and show me this essentially mega connector of data and how they're building this amazing uh, models on top of that to help you with yield. And I'm digging in and I'm asking them, so how are you doing the integration? And he's like, oh, it's not a problem. API. So I was like, what, what? API, did you say? I was like, listen, um, you know, Flex alone, a single company have like probably 200 versions of their shop floor and probably another 150 version of their bond ERP. There is no APIs there, man. Um, yeah. So I think there is still, uh, my point here, there is a still a long way, I believe to see a magic of AI is happening in the manufacturing because the AI cannot really be useful if you don't have a clean data in real time. And to abstract the clean data from, I'm not talking about small facility or brand new yeah. facility, you know, when you will come and walk with um, someone like um, Dyson and that having a bunch of their stuff that they run, bunch of their stuff at Benchmark, bunch of their stuff at JBuild, and you tell them, oh, I'm coming with my uh, sexy AI agent, you know, Jim Ruin will laugh on you. Not Jim anymore, but uh, whoever is, then you see. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's just, it's a little bit too naive. I think it will happen, but um, we need to fix the data like first. Yeah. Um, is there a fundamental problem, Leo, where you're seeing people with huge amounts of AI expertise and not enough manufacturing experience? Is that what it is? They just don't understand how the industry works? Yeah, I mean, we, we love to invest in people that have both. So that people that can bring in the technology expertise, but also the subject matter experts. And this is, you know, really successful. I can give one example. You know, we sold the, uh, an automation company last year to Shopify. Uh, companies to call Six River. Um, for $450 million. And those guys came from Kiva, um, went to Amazon. Uh, one of them was on the technical side. One of them was on the business side. They learned everything that they could learn inside Amazon. Then they left to start a collaborative picking robots for e-commerce. And it was very clear that they understand where is the pitfalls where and where, where is there you know, a rat hole and uh, how to think about integration, how to think about the system design on the business model. And, you know, in three years with uh, less than $40 million, you know, sold their companies in 450 million and now building um, Shopify uh, GFN, the global fulfillment network. So we really like those type of teams that not only coming with great technology backgrounds, but also coming with yeah. uh, domain expertise. Yeah, product knowledge and product experience. Ron, you were going to ask. Yeah, so I, um, a lot of people are, you know, developing side hustles and things they're doing, you know, when they're kind of locked down and, you know, how are you expanding your mind? I, I happen to be, you know, taking a course at Berkeley in AI. And, um, you know, one of the things I'm trying to understand, and maybe you have some insights in this, it seems to me that, that AI currently, especially as it relates to manufacturing, you know, and if you look at what, you know, Anna's doing instrumental, for example, I mean, it's based on having a lot of data, right? And so AI is pretty good about pattern recognition and understanding, you know, hey, I've seen this before. And therefore, at what point in time will we get to some AI for manufacturing where rather than the ability to very quickly do pattern recognition and, and, and learn things, will we ever get to, you know, an inductive reasoning type of AI? So, you know, rather than having a bunch of people that have seen everything in manufacturing, or maybe I haven't seen your new product, but I've launched enough new products that I can kind of look in my own data bank and say, I've seen a problem that kind of looks similar to that before, but, but it's more of a deductive than a, you know, processing of data. Are we anywhere near something like that for hey. AI and any kind of manufacturing applications? Hey, Ron, quick question. Are you getting Leo to help you with your homework? 
<laughs> I um, uh, refuse to answer that uh, question in case one of my professors is listening. Yes, I uh, know. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to provide my uh, feedback, though I didn't finish high school, but uh, I will give it a shot. Um, so I think we're on what you're talking about is the two big teams in AI, right? Is what's called supervised uh, learning and unsupervised. Uh, and by large, most of the AI that we are seeing today in real life, it's supervised AI uh, or supervised machine learning. And the concept that, as you mentioned, you aggregate a lot of data and you train. You train the models, you train, you train, you train until you find pattern recognition. It's actually very similar to the human brain. You know, you, you as a kid, you, you teach your kid, you, you know, your kid how to do these things. And then over time, you just figure out because you learn with the experience. But intuitively, and that's what unsupervised is like, without ever touch this product, I will immediately know that I need to do this thing. Um, and there is a really big um, trend right now that's called transferred knowledge. And the concept there is like, can I take what Waymo train for their self-driving cars and move it to my manufacturing model and be able to find gold without training anything. Every, I just a model that has already been trained on in other adjacent industries that I believe I can transfer to a new industry. The other thing that is really interesting as well is, and that's something actually we're doing with Bright Machines. My vision there was I want to, I want to connect the design aspect of manufacturing to the manufacturing. How many times as a manufacturing expert? some industrial design genius came to you and show you a design and you're like, man, that yield is going to be 2% at best. What are you talking about? I will never be able to put the screw here. Um, and, but that's kind of the reality and all of the cycles and the DFM people don't really like the design people, the design people don't like the manufacturing people. But what I believe the world is going is doing the CAD design. I want that uh, I will have an AI agent that will give me feedback when I'm putting this type of, uh, um, when, I'm, when I'm going to inject model this type of a part, the antenna is actually not going to work well as I want that. So I might need to change the design. And I think that's the holy grail. And actually, I, I guess we will see it in the next 10 years. Um, this basically unsupervised uh, applications coming to the manufacturing world. Something yeah. like that would speed time to market. I mean, in my career, time to market on new products is just as continued to compress and continue to compress. But that would be a step function. That would be really something that would differentiate the new product cycle for sure. Yeah, and this is why um, um, I hired Amar Spal to be the CEO of Autodesk, of um, Bright Machines. And, you know, he didn't come from the manufacturing space. He was the previous Auto, uh, Autodesk CEO. Because my, my vision there is like, I have a lot of flex people that know the manufacturing. I need some, I need a team that yeah. know the CAD. And if these things will combine together, you have, you know, a leapfrog opportunity to make a change. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I'm super bullish on, on this area. Yeah. And is, is digital twin a key element of that? Do you see, also, and you talk about these data lakes, where do, you, where do you see the role of digital twin for products or manufacturing ecosystems for factories i mean digital twin it's it's a table it's going to be table stake um you know we have everything from vive they're doing uh, construction automation and prefab that you know now having uh, a digital twin so you will be basically able to design the house and figure out all the materials and see how everything is going to react before you actually start building something you know, through some of the companies that we already mentioned, but you know, from my point of view, digital twin is it's not a question if you if you need it or not. It's, it's going to be a table stake, and it will allow um, you to do something I'm excited about. And it's um, what Ron was talking about is let's not touch a real hardware before we we run a lot of digital tools and simulations when we actually know that there is a high chance. It's very similar to what's happening in the semiconductor world. Whatever ha what happened in the semiconductors in the last 20 years with uh, EDA tools should migrate to, to the manufacturing world. Yeah. You're not tape out chips today and getting 3% yield, just not happening any, anymore. 
you know, you're getting out of the first batch, usually 90 plus percent yield, even or more. Um, all of you in the call uh, doing a lot of manufacturing, you still have uh, in the EVT and PVT and DVT and even NPI, you know, <laughs> low or mid uh, double digit. Um, and it shouldn't happen. And I think a digital twin yeah. will solve it. Yeah. And so who do you see as the enablers of the digital twin? Are they software companies? Are they, who are we, what's our, what's our barrier to, to getting to that digital twin utopia? There is some big movements there. I mean, you have the CAD people, they're trying to, to do it. So, you know, everything from the so Katia, um, Autodesk, solid walk of the world. You have folks that like PTC that's coming actually from more from the PLM world. You have people that are coming from the controllers like Rockwell Automations, Siemens, um, 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 uh, Schneider Electric, etc. So everyone, and naturally you have all of the cloud providers, Amazon and Google and Microsoft that having today cloud for manufacturing with some digital twins. So, you have this, mm. everyone understand that it's going to be a holy grail and they want a piece of it. Yeah. Which of those industries are, are the, the leading industries that the electronic manufacturing space should be following? You mentioned semiconductor, but I also look at the automation that's going on in logistics and the millions and millions that are being spent there. And that's, that's obviously a driver as well. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I'm a huge believer that, um, fast growing um, trends, usually carrying innovation and technology and e-commerce is it's a great example. It's growing so fast and it's enforcing the system to change because the system is being built not for e-commerce, it's built for retail. Um, I think what we are seeing now and what we talked before, COVID, trade war, uh, lack of um, manpower, uh, uh, turnaround of people will push the manufacturing into a similar uh, uh, cycle. Um, and actually, I think it will start in HRS, so our reliability system, automotive, aviation, aerospace, medical, um, that have the dollars to, to pay for it uh, because they care about quality um, and speed much more than, you know, consumer electronics. Um, but yeah, I, it's, it's again, from my point of view, it's not a question if it's just when. Yeah. And the sooner the better. So, uh, Lior, you, you spent some time in the EMS business and now you're in a business that's, you know, somewhere around infinitely more profitable. Um, <laughs> but infinitely the right but so, much, so, so much of the world's products are built by the large Taiwanese ODMs, the large EMS providers you know i think uh foxconn's going to do 170 billion dollars this year that's a pretty good number if you yeah. had to if you had to give up this interesting job you have and and go be the next ceo of flex go be the next ceo of pegatron of of foxconn tell me two or three things you think you would do differently right out of the chute Actually, uh, actually, Mark asked me the same question last week, uh, uh, the CEO of JBill, so I have it pretty fresh for you. I thought, first of all, my first answer was like, there's no freaking chance I'm giving my job <laughs> for being a CEO of an ODM. It's a, hypothetical, um, it's a hypothetical question. Even in the hypothetical, it's, I'm still scared <laughs> about the idea. Uh, 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 but uh, um, no, on a serious note, um, I think you actually need to go, so, so it, I will answer that as I answer to him is I start with philosophy and then I will go to the tactical philosophy. I will go and change the investor base and I will go and recruit investors that care about growth and not short term profits, basically value investors. Because if I, all of my pressure is the next earning calls and what it was my EPS, I have no chance yeah. because the, on the tactical level, I need to change from a manufacturing company or electronics manufacturing company to a software defined manufacturing. And that umbrella have automation and AI and uh, digital twin and computer vision. And I basically, I will, one of the KPIs I will hold my team is how fast we reduce the manpower without affecting the top line. 
because what that's actually going to determine the efficiency of the organization leveraging technology. And I'm going to approve massive CapEx budget, not to buy another SMT dumb lines, uh, in order to buy the things that will carry me to the next generation. Um, so I will be extremely aggressive on technology. Um, and I think you're also, there is, there is a need here to rethink also the geography. I mean, Quanta and Pegatron and, um, and I'm working closely with Benchmark, uh, a CEO and a bunch of, uh, of companies. Um, so naturally they from Southeast Asia and Asia. So th th this is where they build their facilities, but should they build hubs in different countries, lights out to manufacturing for fast demand? Is additive manufacturing, we didn't talk about it. I'm a huge believer in 3D printing for both for metal and plastics, how I should integrate those into my designs, how I should integrate uh, um, all of the component vendors. Uh, should they be much more vertically integrated style Honhai or should they be much more like a, um, you know, the flex that is, is basically buying all of the components. So I think it's just, you, you cannot, and this is my current frustration with a lot of those companies, they basically doing exactly what they did in the last 20 years. Okay, so, let's yeah. buy a bunch of new lines. Let's open a new facilities next, not in uh, Zhuhai, in Chongqing. Okay, great. Uh, what is the real difference here? Um, yeah. And the world change, and you know the, you cannot ignore what's happening in the world. Yeah. I think I think Mondo would would take a little bit of exception with that, but I, I don't disagree. And in fact, you know, a few years ago, I was fortunate enough to you know guest lecture how these class at Stanford on uh, supply chain, and one of the things we talked about in that session was just this: was the capital structure and the ownership structure of the world's largest manufacturers and how the drive for short-term profits in my mind kind of suppresses manufacturing innovation you know i'm old enough to have grown up in captive factories where we built our own stuff and we actually did r d around process and we did that because if we could differentiate our process you know it would kind of separate us from our competitors but now today in an outsourced world if 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 Mondo and his guys come up with a new process, isn't it kind of widely available to everybody? And so given your concerns and you're adamant that you're not going to go back in that space, can we ever really go to the next level of innovation for manufacturing the way manufacturing is globally structured today? So I will ask your questions in a, in a slightly different way. Um, I have two options um, and you know, um, you put me in that seat and you tell me you can pick only one option. You can pick, you can pick SpaceX model or you can pick JBL and Flex model. And I will always pick the SpaceX model um, because I believe that this is the future of manufacturing, this vertically integrated, cutting edge, automated, additive manufacturing, software led, uh, um, high caliber people, um, I think this world of how EMS is being structured, that by large, it's a label arbitrage game, but it's not there anymore, but that's kind of what the model is gone. And, 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 sh and you should not try to um, um, relife that with trying in that innovation because the structure is the wrong structure. So I will just go and rebuild it from scratch and there is no one, there is no CEOs that have the guts in the EMS and ODM worlds to say, hey, I'm um, 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 CC from Quanta and I'm going now to, to, to basically change the full structure of the company. They're going to do their five, six, seven, eight years, make a lot of money, a couple of millions of dollars a year and go home. It's going to be someone else's problem. Yeah, it's hard to make yourself so uh, obsolete. Exactly. Yeah, it's just, it's just a lot of tweaking, isn't it? Do you think the issue is that we had the search to be the world's largest EMS. We had the search to be the world's cheapest EMS. Those are kind of ships that sailed. Is what's important now? Would someone's got to be the world's smartest EMS? Is that yeah, what is the next drive should be? Yeah, no, I, I, I like the, the way you put it. And, you know, um, 
um, when Mark asked me, so what is your strategy in Eclipse? I told him, man, I'm building a hybrid EMS. I have basically a bunch of companies that if you would put them together, I would get the EMS just in, you know, 0.001% of the, your total employees. And by the way, I'm going yeah. to do a better throughput than you and a better yield. Um, yeah. So, you know, naturally this is a, um, um, this is a hypothesis. It's not necessary what we are going to do, but the concept is like, you want the future of EMS, you need to go build it from scratch and it must be smart. Yeah. yeah. And you've got to be super creative. And you mentioned additive and interestingly in the additive space, there are a bunch of companies that have created those manufacturing ecosystems that refer to themselves sometimes as manufacturing as a service or mm -hmm. uh, global manufacturing ecosystems where they have a connected supplier base. They have some boots on the ground around those. They have, you know, maybe some DFM on the fly on their system and some AI supporting those. Do you see those as an exciting part of the, the future of the, of the manufacturing space? Yeah, I'm a huge, I'm a huge believer of on demand. And again, all of those people are riding on the same waves. They are leveraging digital twin and CAD to manufacturing and uh, all of the good stuff. Uh, I will tell you that the printers themselves and the materials are, get, are getting into a place and the speed yeah. that this can replace traditional CNC and that it can replace a, a injection molding. Not for consumer, by the way, it's not there yet. Uh, but um, I will give you a stat. Uh, SpaceX in 2014 had 3% of the total bomb in additive. SpaceX in 2020 going to have 24%. Wow. Yeah. That's so that's, significant. that's a lot of less CNC machine and stamping and before it's, and it's much more big 3D printing, you know, crapping parts. And yeah. if I will check, if I will check the same stat of how many, if, what was the percentage of parts um, in the machining team in Flex or JBL is being uh, printed in 2020? My guess it's less than 1%. Yeah. Yeah, we really haven't seen the metal 3D printing take off very much in the in the EMS space and contract manufacturing space. Mm -hmm. A lot of plastics, not a lot of plastics, but certainly not in the metal. The sintering stuff just hasn't taken off. Hasn't taken off. But there's some it's amazing coming. stuff out there. You look at what Mark Forged and people like that are doing, some fantastic technology. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we have a company in this space called Vulcan out of Boston. And basically they're, they're going to compete with uh, CPC, with uh, casting uh, um, uh, precision of Berkshire Hathaway that, you know, doing 34, uh, that got bought in $34 billion. And the only thing that they have is 25,000 people doing CNC for aerospace defense in, in and medical device and you know we're going to eat the dog food yeah because we can print way faster than a human and it's going to be much more accurate and by the way um on a single machine of vulcan you can do 20 million dollars of parts a year um so it's just the unit economics is there like big time it's yeah. going to happen yeah and when you look at these young startups that you're talking to, this 2,700 a year or whatever that come through mm -hmm. your door, when they look at manufacturing, are they start starting to look at it, at it differently? Are they looking for more digitally enabled manufacturers? Are they thinking maybe they'll do their own captive manufacturing? Maybe they'll use, you know, these uh, manufacturing as a service models. Has that yeah, changed? Yeah, yeah. I think you know there's. I would say we started the film five years ago. Uh, I will tell you that today I see much more courage in those entrepreneurs' eyes, and they're coming. If if they used to be scared by the traditional EMS and CMs and LDMs, and say, "Oh, I'm just going to be a small, little niche solution and work with them," now we hear much more voices of like, "We actually don't need them, and we're going to replace them if needed. We're going to be much more vertically integrated, and we have much more." Uh, we know that technology is the real dif differentiator and not what they have. So that carriage is telling me that, you know, some big change is coming. Yeah, that's a big change in trend. One of the trends that I think is really interesting that you seem to be highlighting is that there's no slow up in terms of technology investment. The whole COVID thing doesn't seem, it seems to have made you more, uh, more aggressive rather than, rather than defensive. Yeah, um, did not change a thing. Um, 
from pace or deployment, at least from our point of view, uh, and at least from what I'm talking with my other friends uh, that investing in, in similar industries. So yeah, no slowdown, at least not yet. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's it, one of the things that we've been trying to figure out is what are the problems coming out of COVID? What do we need to solve? It seems that capital isn't one of them. Um, obviously, the other ones we talked about are automation, but also this this massive shift in um, in supply chain footprint. Do you see that shift as realistic, or do you think it's a lot slower than people expect? I mean, I, I think it's. I don't think we had any better catalyst in the last 50, 60 years. So if that one will not make a big change, I think nothing will make a big change. Yeah, uh, I agree with that. You know, when, when you think about the concept of like, we, there is a distant advantage of having a lot of people in the same facility with, the, with this, um, um, with COVID, um, you couldn't think about something that would be more dangerous on the current, um, you know, mass production solutions in Asia. Uh, that's what they built on, right? Massive facilities with a lot of people. Um, so if we will not be able to use that as a catalyst to really step on the gas and kind of making the changes in this country to uh, try to leapfrog and rebuild um, a lot of the manufacturing, uh, I think nothing else will help us. You know, I said in, um, in April, I said, listen, anyone that knows something about manufacturing will tell you it's freaking stupid to give a car oil to car manufacturing the job of building ventilators. It's just stupid. Yeah. Um, but that's the reality. We don't have anything else in this country to build ventilators when we needed a lot of them. And China could build a million ventilators in, 80, in 48 hours. And they build the hospital in three days because they have a prefab. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, we need to wake up. Yeah. So I guess the answer then when you look at you look at the changes to the way footprints of manufacturing footprints exist the answer isn't to shift it out of china or to shift it anywhere specific is to have more more agility more visibility um and that digital twin so when you do want to make a shift or you do want to respond to a disruption it's there is that all about having the right supply chain visibility tools i, I don't think so I, I think supply chain visibility it's one of them um, I mean, the reality is we can try to bring assembly back to this country to bring the long tail supply chain. It's a different ballgame that will take a hundred years. Uh, and I think we need to have a good strategy for it. It's above my pay grade. So I couldn't come up with an idea. Um, but you know, I think, um, at least let's focus on where we have an unfair advantage and is in the technology side of things and manufacturing and not in, you know, scale or machinery people or, yeah, you know, go, go trying to find someone in Midwest that understand how to tune uh, the right chemicals in an S&T machine. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's jobs that we don't have in this country anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the skill set as well as the, um, you know, as well as as well as the tools there. We've only got a couple of minutes left, guys. I just wanted to wrap up and figure out what today's key takeaways are. Ron, I'm going to let you have a little stab at some takeaways for today for our audience before we uh, before we finish. Yeah, I think so many of the problems that we've been talking about, especially you and I, Phil, on the series, so many of them are about how do we adjust the system that exists today to respond to, you know, both the tariffs and the pandemic and, and like Lior said, you know, if, if, if these aren't catalysts, you know, what, what the hell is a catalyst? Having said that, we've, yeah. we've spent an awful lot of time talking about, you know, how do we steer the particular ship that is, you know, the electronics manufacturing world today. And what I'm hearing from Lior is, you know, that ship's got an awful lot of momentum and pretty soon somebody's going to build a little ship from scratch. It's just going to go blowing right past it. And so, really interesting perspective to talk for, to someone who rather than being in the manufacturing is spending all of their time trying to disrupt what we do. So I, I found this just absolutely fascinating. Yeah, likewise. And you know, 
my my favorite word there is disruption and i i think the industry desperately needs some uh disruption it looks likely or a lot of your a lot of your investments are disruptors is that is that something that is coincidental or deliberate oh it's definitely deliberate <laughs> you like to shake things up i mean i think what you cannot take is you know it's a three trillion dollar industry multiple right only i think metal is like two trillion or something like that and you put it's just so big and i want to take a lot of it and you know yeah. and i think um the good news for me is my incumbents are analog players and not digital and i'm coming with only digital yeah yeah and it's clear that the digital will eat the analog as we um as we move into into the next decade. Fantastic. Leo, thank you so much for your time. Ron, thanks for joining me again. You're absolutely right. This has been a, a very different conversation to the other ones we've had, but but equally valuable and, and absolutely fascinating. Thanks again for your time, everybody. And thank you to our audience for dialing in. Leo, thanks for staying up so late. Go get some sleep, or maybe you've got some more work to do. I don't I know. Still have like um, I still have 200 emails to take care of. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Take care. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. Take care.